Well, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. It is lovely seeing you. Thank you for those of you who bear the weather. Uh, I, I, it's, it's funny, you don't have a huge drop-off, but you always get about a 10% drop-off in the rain here in Florida. You know, where I live up, used to live up north, we, we you know, would, would go in snowstorms, but of course you lost about 30 or 40% of the congregation in a snowstorm. Uh, but it never crossed my mind that a rain that rain would actually affect that kind of thing. But hey, you know we we've got uh, you know different sets of standards here since we don't have snow. Um, Shore Acres folks needed a boat. Okay. First um, Thessalonians chapter two. We began a new series last Sunday called Gospel Clarity. What is the gospel? Why do we need it? What is the gospel? Why do we need it? And um, we're going to continue that today. Uh, in fact, my, my first two headings could be, have simply been, what is the gospel? The second one, why do we need it? But I, I gave it something else more fitting to the text. But as you'll see, that's really what I'm driving at in each of these. But if you would read with me in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll begin in chapter 2 and verse 11. And we'll read the 11 and 12. And I'll be reading from the New International Version of the Bible. For you know... That we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do encourage us, do exhort us, do urge us to live lives worthy of you. You who call us by your gospel into your kingdom and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Oz Guinness tells of a prominent, successful businessman speaking at a conference near Oxford, sharing, quote, I've been very fortunate in my career, and I've made a lot of money, far more than I've ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. But then he slowed down, and as a tear rolled slowly down his cheek, he continued, To be honest, one of my motives for making so much money was simple. To have the money to hire people to do what I don't like doing. But there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me. Find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I'd give anything to discover that. Francis Collins, the man who led the International Human Genome Project that cracked the human DNA code, writing it for the first time, subsequently, just so you kind of get an idea of the the kind of scientist this guy is, he uh, was the director of the National Institute of Health under Obama, Trump, and Biden, and is now serving as a science advisor to the president. He was raised non-religious, when his journey began, he was an agnostic. Soon later, you know, soon after, he became an atheist. Moving from, I don't know if there's a God, and if there is, we can't know him, to there is no God. It's a difference between those two. However, while deep diving, deep diving into science as a biologist, he began to realize science's powerlessness. 
in the face of questions such as, why does the universe exist to begin with? Or, why is, or, or what is the meaning of human existence? Why do I exist? In a world that often embraces science as religion, something it was never intended to be, it's no wonder people have lost the meaning of why they exist. While he studied to become a world-renowned scientist, Collins became a passionate follower of Jesus at the same time. In an early draft of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, I can't say that well, uh, in that draft, the Inquisitor describes what happens to the human soul when it doubts its purpose. It reads as follows. For the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to live for something definite. Without a firm notion of what he is living for, man will not accept life and will rather destroy himself than remain on earth. Which may well explain the self-destructive tendencies of the human race at this point. The gospel calls us to something, to, to a grand purpose much greater than any one of us could accomplish on our own. It calls us not to a personal purpose, but to a purpose which will far outlast our own bodily life, the purposes of the kingdom of heaven. Purposes that give meaning to our lives, purposes that include within them purpose for our individual lives that far exceed anything that we could devise. We're going to explore this gospel call under three headings. The gospel that calls. You know, parentheses. What is the gospel? Uh, the gospel call. Why do we need it? And then walking worthy of our gospel call. So under that first heading, the gospel calls. In First Thessalonians, our text, leading up to those verses that we read, the gospel has been mentioned five times, specifically by name. When Paul speaks of living lives worthy of God who calls us to his kingdom and glory, it is the gospel by which they have been called to live these lives worthy of God. Last week, we looked closely at what the gospel is, and it can be stated succinctly. And this is really the, the, the core takeaway from that first part of last week's message, which is that the gospel can be stated succinctly as, Your God reigns. Or... Of course, you have to footnote your, because it's not just anyone you could say that to. It's the people of Israel, Yahweh, that God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He reigns. Uh, to put it in more New Testament terminology, Jesus is the Christ, meaning Jesus is God's good promised King that would restore things to God's ways. Jesus is the Christ. Now, if through the gospel God calls us to live lives worthy of God, and if through the gospel God calls us to his kingdom and glory, then if we accurately identify what the gospel is, it will be calling us to something. A gospel that does not call us to something could not actually be the gospel, since the gospel does indeed call us to something. And to be honest, what is commonly referred to as the gospel in evangelical culture doesn't seem to call us to anything. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's good stuff. It's, it's great stuff. It's important stuff, even essential stuff that is often called the gospel. 
but there's nothing intrinsic to it that calls us to live worthy of God or to his kingdom and glory. And so we end up with this sort of divided head where we go, this is the gospel. And then we go, there's this other stuff in the Bible that keeps telling me how I should live. I'm not sure why it's there, what I'm supposed to do with it. Because we've created this chasm between what we think the gospel is and what it actually is. And this doesn't call us to anything, and we're trying to figure out why we're called to something. It's because the gospel calls us to something, but we need to identify what that gospel is. John Stott, once discussing a trend among some evangelicals to identify the, quote, irreducible minimum gospel. Say that three times fast. Irreducible minimum gospel. Asks, who wants an irreducible minimum gospel? I want the full biblical gospel. <laughs> I offer the, that the, a key reason the state of the evangelical church in America is largely anemic is that we have been feeding on this so-called irreducible minimum gospel. Amen. We have taken very important doctrine, a very important doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and, and made it the gospel rather than a truth of the gospel. We've made it the gospel rather than a truth of the gospel. I mean, in most cases, even in our history here, if you would have said, hey, how do you answer the question, what is the gospel? We would have gone straight to the doctrine of justification. I love the doctrine of justification. Do not miss miss my point. I love it. Justification by faith alone, through grace alone, vitally important. It is not the gospel. It is a part of the gospel truth. It is essential to the gospel. I'm not denying that. But if we think that's the gospel, we've got another thing coming. We need to be clear on what the gospel is. Remember from last week, the gospel is not just any good news, but it is a particular good news. It is the announcement that Jesus is God's good promised king. He is the Christ, and he reigns. That is, succinctly stated, the gospel. Now, let me come at it another way. Is the gospel about... Jesus? Or is it about how to get to heaven with Jesus serving the purpose of making that possible? See, I think for many of us, the gospel has become this, how do I get to heaven? It answers the question, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus is somewhat utilitarian. He serves the purpose of making that possible. Aside from that, he's otherwise unnecessary to the gospel. But I would suggest to you that if we have it right, the gospel is actually about Jesus. Not about how we get to heaven. I I would argue that you can't find anywhere in the New Testament, except we've been trained to misread some verses that tend to go this way, but but if if we just explain those in their original context, they clearly don't mean this. It'd be hard to find any verse in the New Testament that that makes the goal getting to heaven as to why we should come to Christ. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to go to hell, so you know, I, I understand the rationale. <laughs> you know, don't miss the point. <laughs> what role does Jesus play in the gospel? Well, the proper answer to that is he doesn't play a role. He is the gospel. What is the gospel? Last June, Donna and I had planned for our 42nd anniversary to go to New Orleans uh, for the first time in our lives. Never had been there, and we were going to spend four days there and really enjoy it. Well, that 
We got sick, and that got postponed. So December 1st through 4th, we found ourselves in New Orleans taking the trip, which we had already paid for, and, and we're ready to go. So we go, the, the, which turns out to be a much nicer time of year to be there anyway. So we were grateful to be there. And um, <clears throat> on our second night there, uh, we, we were meandering through the French Quarter and ended up on Bourbon Street, which is a bit of a raucous area, not a place you necessarily want to be. But we discovered as we go by this one place, hey, what's going on inside those walls? There was a larger cafe beignet sitting there, and they had this courtyard with tables and a band, a, you know, boomer-aged band, playing uh, jazz Christmas songs, and with mostly people our age, uh, approximately, in the audience. And uh, good fortune would have it that there was an open table, which is a rare thing in places and settings like that, but... We sat down, and I don't know, about 10 or 15 minutes later, uh, we noticed this other couple, maybe in their late 30s, early 40s, um, that were looking for a table. And we motioned for them to come sit at the two empty chairs at our table. And so they did, and we soon discovered that they didn't know a word of English. Uh, they spoke French because they were from France. And uh, thank God for Google Translate, right? <laughs> I love Google Translate, okay? Um. And, 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 and so we begin interacting and so forth, and they explain to us that they are on the front end, more or less, of a, a journey, you know, first time they've been to America, and, and they're going to visit eight to ten cities uh, for two to three days each with some travel days in between, um, and they're going to spend a month. And, and so they had been to Miami for uh, two or three days, and now they were in New Orleans. This was their first night in New Orleans, and so we spent the next 45 minutes or so listening to music, interacting with them, and, and having a, an enjoyable evening there. And I began to think about that. You know, you're, you're going to see America. You, so your idea of what America is will be made up of two or three days uh, in eight to ten cities. Will they really know America? Well, imagine another couple. That, I don't know if this couple actually exists, but we'll just imagine they do for the moment. They have 90 days, and they're going to rent a motorhome, and they're going to travel west coast, east coast, and back again. First, they're going to do it stopping in cities and towns along the way on, on the southern route, I-10. And then they're going to do it uh, along I-40, maybe. And then they're going to do it along I-70. And then maybe I-90 before they're finished. And they will have covered numerous cities and towns along the way, spent numerous days in as many of them as possible. They'll have met people in a city and people in the country. They'll, which of these two couples is going to have a clearer understanding of America? The second one, right? Popular versions of the gospel are akin to a two-city tour of the U.S. Amounting uh, to, you know, that's the gospel. We just went to two cities, and that, that's America, you know. We, we, we got this truth out of the Bible, that's the gospel. Well, you would no more understand the gospel by one or two doctrines than you would by understanding America, if you spent a day in L.A. and a day in New York City. It's like the difference between the creeds and the gospel. The creeds are not the gospel. The creeds seek to find the minimal required beliefs. The creeds cannot save. Only the gospel is the power of God. Take the Nicene Creed, which is a much more robust creed than the Apostles' Creed. But the point could be made in either one of these the same. 
Here is the section about Jesus in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through Him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation He came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate in the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Now that is glorious. But I want you to notice something. We have his preexistence. The first few verses of John come to mind. And we have his incarnation and virgin birth. Then we have his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is great as far as it goes. But have you noticed something missing? Imagine picking up a biographical sketch of Abraham Lincoln that had a paragraph on his birth and immediately went to how he died after being shot in the theater. I mean, it's true as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far. The, the way the creeds see Jesus would be like seeing America by spending a day in L.A. and flying to New York City and spending a day there. More than 50% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are completely ignored. For instance, Matthew 3 through 26 are eliminated. Mark 1 through 13 are not needed. Luke 3 through 21 are not needed. John 1 verse 15 through chapter 17 verse 26 are unnecessary. A church built only on the creeds is missing the essential middle. We need that essential middle. In most versions of the gospel that I've heard growing in the Christian faith for 45 years, the life of Jesus is either unimportant, entertaining, or confusing because it doesn't seem to have much to do with the gospel, as I was told the gospel was. It's not enough to say that it shows that he lived a good life and obeyed God. It does that, but that doesn't explain healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, restoring the dead to life, or forgiving sins. And since our systematic theologies were largely built around the creeds to explain the things in the creeds, and that became the structure around which all systematic theologies are built, guess what? They also largely ignore much of what makes up the gospel as we have it in our Bibles. If we leave the life of Jesus out of the gospel, we don't know the kind of king he is. We don't know the values of the kingdom and how we are to live as ambassadors of the king. It is vital that we don't leave out that essential middle. Amen? Amen. Last week, we focused on the most succinct way we can state the gospel. Your God reigns. Jesus is the Christ. But please do not confuse succinct with minimalistic. Please do not confuse succinct with minimalistic. However succinct that is, far from minimizing the gospel, it cracks it wide open. It shows just how big it is. As we saw, it explains why everything in Matthew through John are not just the gospels, but the gospel. I fear, however, that 
that we evangelicals, and by the way, evangelicals, the root of that word is gospel, the evangel. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, okay? So evangelical is, in theory, people who believe the gospel. But I fear that we evangelicals have focused on some kind of irreducible gospel minimum. It should not surprise us that it has produced, at best, disciples who barely qualify as followers of Jesus. Much less has it produced disciples abuzz with the life of Jesus. As Dallas Willard has written, such gospels do not naturally produce disciples, but only consumers of religious goods and services. Let me say that again. Such gospels, referring to these minimalistic sorts of gospels, do not naturally produce disciples, but only consumers of religious goods and services. See, religious consumers are people who have their ticket punched to heaven and are glad to show up on Sunday to see what else the church offers to make their life here and now better too. Rather than people who have been called into God's kingdom, called to live lives worthy of something. Something grand and glorious. I want to have, as John Stott put it, a full biblical gospel. Amen? Amen. Michael Goheen and Tim Sheridan in their book, Becoming a Missionary Church, write this. They say, the, the gospel, if it is to be biblical, cannot be reduced to a message of individual salvation, but announces the restoration of God's rule over the whole creation, an entire spectrum of human life. The church is not a private religious community, but the new humanity. The gospel, if it is to be biblical, cannot be reduced to a message of individual salvation, but announces the restoration of God's rule over the whole creation and entire spectrum of human life. That's why I say, don't confuse a, a, a succinct statement, your God reigns, with a minimalist gospel. Because your God reigns is declaring that God's rule over the whole of creation and the entire spectrum of human life has been restored. And someone might quip, but the gospel does save the individual. Yes, but it never leaves them alone. And the salvation it brings them is not merely about what happens after they die, but begins immediately and has something to do with how they are to relate to the rest of the world. The gospel transforms our relationships, and if it does not, we have not heard the gospel. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says, For many people, the gospel has shrunk right down to a statement about Jesus' death and its meaning, and a prayer with which people accept it. That matters the way the rotor blades of a helicopter matter. You won't get off the ground without them, but rotor blades alone do not make a helicopter. And a microcosmic theory of atonement by faith don't, by themselves, make up the gospel. You see, you may not have a gospel without atonement, but neither do you have a gospel with atonement alone. Scott McKnight suggests that the gospel of Jesus wants more from us than a singular decision to get our sins wiped away so we can be safe and secure until heaven comes. It wants more from us than that. And if that's true, what does it want from us? And that leads to our second point. By the way, my first point was my longest point by far. Um, <clears throat> 
So just, you know, I'm at, I'm at my halfway point right now. Um, so second point, the gospel call, which is to say, why do we need it? You see, the truncated gospel or the irreducible minimum gospel calls us to heaven, but not much else. These verses about our calling seem to include much more. The, the, the First Thessalonians, our text, is the first one I'm going to offer. For, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives, literally, to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his, own, into his kingdom and glory. Now, Paul had just finished describing how he and his team had lived among them, placing them first, caring for them. It is reasonable to assume that he is now speaking about how God calls them to live the same way toward one another and everybody else. And it's safe to assume that also because it is confirmed just 12 verses after our text when Paul prays, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. So the call that he's speaking of is for them indeed to conform their lives to the gospel the same way that he and his team had done so toward them. Then in Ephesians 4 verse 1, we have very similar language. Paul tells the Ephesians, I urge you to live a life, literally walk worthy of the calling you have received. And just like in 1 Thessalonians, that word worthy, it actually, it, it refers to matching up to, walk in a way that is congruent with God who calls you, that is congruent with the calling you have received. The gospel calls us to a new way of life, one that aligns with it. Philippians 1.27, just backing up, when I say one that aligns with it, okay, if the gospel is your God reigns, I'm saying the gospel calls us to a new way of life that aligns with God's reign, his kingdom. Okay? Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, matching up to, there it is again, of the gospel of Christ. Now, conduct yourselves is not literally walk in a manner or walk this way. It's a new word. In fact, it's a word which has no English equivalent. So you kind of have to describe it if you really want to get to the heart of it. it has, you can't translate it into English because there's no existing word to cover that, if you will. It's not walk-worthy of the gospel. It's, uh, well, Paul tells them later in the le- letter, in chapter 3, that they are citizens of heaven. Right? They're citizens of the kingdom of heaven is what he's talking about. They were already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They didn't have to go there to be citizens. They are citizens. Now, the people in Philippi understood what citizenship was. Uh, they were a colony of Rome, which, unlike many other cities, for instance, in Asia Minor or Greece, unlike many other cities, the Philippian uh, uh, residents were given citizenship to Rome. They, they weren't just subdued by Rome and controlled by Rome, but they were now citizens of Rome. They had the same rights as if they lived in Rome and were citizens of Rome. Um, and, and so they understood the concept. Uh, Paul urges them here in chapter 127 when he says conduct yourselves. That, that word is literally, if, if we were to create a word, it would be something like citizenize yourselves worthy of the gospel. 
Of course, that doesn't really make sense since it's not a word, but it, it means that they were to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now. They, they knew this. They, they weren't, the, the, the Philippian citizens were not waiting to be brought to Rome so that they could one day live as Roman citizens. They, they weren't waiting for an escort to Rome. They lived to bring Roman culture to Asia Minor, to Greece, to the places around them. Okay? Likewise, our call to the kingdom, to our citizenship in the kingdom, is not to wait for our escort to heaven, but to bring the culture of heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. If the gospel is Jesus is king and reigns, that does in fact call us to live under that reign, to live in the reality of our king. On the other hand, the truncated version of the gospel, that which is about how I get to heaven, and Jesus serves the purpose of paying the bill, there, there isn't really a walk that matches up to that. How do you walk matching up to that? It doesn't really fit that kind of language. The doctrine of justification was never intended to carry the weight of the whole gospel. The truncated gospel calls us to a decision. The gospel that Jesus reigns over everything in heaven and earth calls us to a kingdom and glory. Now we're getting back to the question, why do we need the gospel? Last week we covered a key reason why we need the gospel. The gospel that Jesus is king. Why do we need it? Because we make lousy kings whether of ourselves or anyone else. We make lousy kings. We need God's good promised king. Amen? Amen. But there's another key reason we need the gospel, and I alluded to it last week, and I said we'd be talking about this, so let me, let me get to it right now. We were made for a purpose deep down, and we can't thrive, we can't live truly to who we are until we find our true purpose and the true meaning of our lives. The gospel calls us to the true meaning of our lives. Here in our text called a kingdom and glory. What does he mean by a kingdom? I'm going to take those two words and we're going to walk through each of them. They're related. They're not exactly the same, but they're overlapping, if you will. A kingdom. You may recall when Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. When he said that, he is not saying that his kingdom is not located here, but that his kingdom does not originate here. It is literally, my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not from here. This isn't its origin. His kingdom had much greater origins. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had appeared to them over a period of 40 days, talking to them about what? The kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God, referred to different ways. I think there's actually the kingdom of God, but yes, six of one, half a dozen the other. And the disciples asked Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? What kingdom? The kingdom of God that he's been talking about for 40 days? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer was similar to that which he had given Pilate. He did not say, no, how ignorant of you. Don't you understand that I'm not interested in the kingdom? He didn't say that. Now, that's how we often read that. But he didn't say that. He said, it's not for you to know the time. But here's what you need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. You see, he didn't tell them when. He told them how he was restoring the kingdom. 
They had to bear witness that Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore had been exalted to God's right hand to rule over everything in heaven and earth. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit to do this, to anoint them for the task at hand. Just as Jesus went about in Acts chapter 10, Peter explains the gospel. And we actually have there a pretty good outline of the gospel of Mark as a succinct summary of what he said. But in that he says that Jesus, after he was anointed, Christed, with the Holy Spirit, he went about preaching and doing good. Preaching and doing good. Okay? Likewise, the apostles, when they ask about when he's restoring the kingdom, well, remember from two Sundays back, that's a dynamic answer. When is re- has something to do with how we engage it, right? Our calling out to God, our engagement. So it says, no, not when, here's how. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So what do they do? They go wait and pray. Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses. And, and then what does he describe? You'll be my witnesses in, well, Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom. And then Judea, the region that it controlled. And then Samaria, the northern kingdom, capital of that northern kingdom. And, and, and then, what? The uttermost parts of the earth. The kingdom is expanding. It's being restored. But how? As the Holy Spirit comes down and brings heaven to earth and transforms us into His image. To do what? To do what Jesus did. To go about preaching and doing good. Preaching and doing good. They're consistent with each other. They're both part of God's plan. Central to all our praying is the cry for the rule and reign of Jesus as King on earth as it is in heaven. To His kingdom and glory. What does it mean that we are called to glory? Is it just another word for heaven? You know, we say this at funerals, they have entered into glory. Is that what it means? Emphatically, no. Glory is what Adam and Eve had lost in the garden so that they realized that they were naked. Glory was an aspect of being in God's image and likeness. Fallen humans, though they are still in God's image, are no longer sharing that glory. Paul spoke of this glory to the Colossians. This glory that that makes us what we were truly made to be. And we need to be restored to that glory. He said to them that God had chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of being restored to glory. What, what would make us glorious? Christ in us. What was Paul praying for the Galatians? That Christ be formed within you. I travail in birth as in childbirth that Christ be formed in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the truth that in Jesus, the true human, who was servant of all, who is now ruler over all, that in him we too are being transformed into true humans. A people who bear God's image. That's why I call it the new humanity. People that have been restored to what God made us to be in the beginning, which is image bearers who represent him to the rest of creation. A people who bear his image, the image of the servant king, and bring life to humanity, spreading Eden to the ends of the earth. When we realize that the the hope of the gospel is the reconciliation of everything in heaven and earth by transforming us back into God's image-bearing agents of peace, of shalom, then acts of kindness no longer have to be carrots to bait people into what we are really after, which is to get them to heaven. 
Now, don't think I've stopped preaching yet just because I started talking about that. So hang on. We, this is important. Acts of kindness can actually be acts of kindness. They can be an end in themselves because they are kind. Do you know good works don't have to merit salvation? Good works can actually be an end in themselves because they are good. Good works, right? They're good. I know we've gotten so concerned about mixing good works into our meriting salvation that we've suddenly begun to think as an evangelical whole that good works is a dirty word. God forbid that we have them. I I stretch a point to make a point, to be sure. We aren't doing a youth baseball outreach so we can uh, sell them Jesus and a ticket to heaven somehow after they get there. We are doing a youth baseball outreach because fun and teaching younger people how to be better people and play better baseball at the same time is worthy of the cause, uh, is a worthy cause itself. We'd love to get to know these people more because they too need community like we do. And every act of kindness can stand on its own legs though. Even sharing why we follow Jesus as King. We, we will have those opportunities as the Lord provides them. I hope that sometimes people would just begin to ask, why would you as a church do this? I've already had conversations with people that this has really struck them and affected their entire view of the church and Christianity. Amen. See, that, that's why a, a youth baseball outreach is good. Our glorious priestly task is to take a hoe and start working the garden to turn it into a place of life and somehow i think engaging kids at a place of recreation and showing them how to do it well making them ultimately into better people is like taking a hoe and making a garden because it feeds people because it helps them that's our priestly task given to us in the garden take a hoe Turn the dirt into a garden, a place that produces life. You see, this event reaches people at a place where they are finding some respite from all the stuff of life. It's recreation, or said differently, recreation. We are tilling this garden. We're making it good instead of a wilderness. See, the gospel calls us to something, not just a decision, but a kingdom and glory. What does that look like? How do we do it? That leads to our third and shortest heading, which is walking worthy of our gospel call. Paul urges us to walk worthy of God. Some versions of the gospel have no room for such an urging. We rightly recognize that we cannot merit redemption or forgiveness from God, and since that is the only thing that a reductionist gospel is about, then we don't really know what to do with verses like this. This language of walking worthy of our calling means our lives are a journey, a a journey directed by the gospel call. A gospel which declares that God reigns has a place for walking worthy of God who calls us into that kingdom and glory. It calls us to be image bearers of the king, to be worthy ambassadors of reconciliation, to borrow language from our third point last week. In the kingdom, we are called to work for the Department of State as representatives of the king, if you will. 
What is, what is God really asking from us? Is it merely to go to church more, to pray more, to care more, to deny ourselves more? No, no. He's asking for our whole life. Nothing short of our whole life. In the truncated gospel, all we can say about church attendance is that it won't make you a Christian or get you to heaven. Okay, so what? But then how do I explain why gathering together seems to be such an important part of the Christian life? It kind of leaves me without words for that. In the kingdom gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that Jesus reigns, we gather as an outpost of the kingdom where we get a taste of heaven on earth in God's temple. Not the building, the people. And where we are equipped as ambassadors of reconciliation. And this will call us to gather more, pray more, care more. We will gladly deny ourselves for the expanse of the kingdom. It encourages us to give the king our whole life. God has called us into partnership with him in a universal renewal venture, if you will. Frankly, we need the encouragement that can only be gained in the company of others who are also laying down their lives for the king in this universal renewal venture. On Sunday mornings when we gather, we seek respite from the violence, the suffering, the turmoil of the world in which we live. Yes. However, it's not an escapist, stick-our-heads-in-the-sand sort of respite that we seek. No, we, we also come to intercede for the world outside that is also experiencing the violence, suffering, and turmoil. We intercede for them as God's people, expecting to hear what He wants us to do about it. Borrowing words from Richard Stearns, the gospel intends to give us a personal, transforming relationship with God. Yes, indeed. It also intends to give us a public, transforming relationship with the world around us. I'll say that again. The gospel intends to give us a personal, transforming relationship with God. Indeed. It also intends to give us a public, transforming relationship with the world around us. Both of those are an essential part of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel calls us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, to be world transformers as we represent our good king to the world. It calls us to pray for and seek the realization of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It calls us to lay down our lives in order to do so. What if? What, what if we did? I just want you to imagine for a moment with me. Just pretend for a moment. What if a, a hundred of us here in this community took the call seri- seriously? Or I mean, maybe, maybe if 50 of us, I mean, arguably Abraham having that discussion over Sodom, but what, what if there'd be only 10? You can pick your number, but what if we actually seriously did it, and how might it turn this community upside down? Not, not how might it make us famous. Oh, we're going to be written about. That's never the goal. Oh, we're going to be the, the best-known church in the community. That's never the goal. You see, no more than good works as a means to get to heaven Do we do these things as a means to grow the church or become famous or be successful? 
We do these things because they are the work of the king. And that is sufficient in and of itself. Amen. Amen. What if the neighborhood began to realize that when we gather in here, rainstorm or not, we are praying for them also? How might that affect them? The gospel calls us and imparts to us in various measure bags of gold, bags of God's wealth, talents, which is a terrible way to understand it because of the English similarity to another word. Um, Bags of gold, much better. The gospel imparts to us bags of gold, bags of God's wealth, of forgiveness, of mercy, of kindness, of reconciliation, of healing, of hope, of forbearance. And we must go and pour it into the world and trust that in the ways of our king it will bear fruit and grow. What if we did that? I mean, 50 of us. Perchance 100 of us. Or do we bury it so we can return it unaltered when he comes back? That's the alternative. Listen, this is what we live for. This is the meaning of our lives. This is why we were created and then recreated in Christ Jesus to do good deeds, deeds that are good. 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 Each created uniquely to bring our unique aspect to the painting, the work of art, if you will. Our part in the glorious kingdom that God is building, a city which is also a garden of life. Our culture has substituted fame for glory. We've lost the ability to have glory, so we've sought after fame, which is surely a very cheap substitute. Fame, people crave it until they have it. It drives so much of social media, of of life itself in, in our culture. But fame is amoral. And it more often takes on the morality of the culture itself, which generally isn't good. So it it orients in the wrong direction. Glory is rooted in what is good. So by nature, it cannot be amoral. Fame is an empty substitute for glory. We need a glorious gospel. Even churches have substituted a glorious gospel for something that will make them famous and large and big and well-known and You see where fame creeps in even into our spiritual life, our religious life, our gospel life? We need a glorious gospel, a fully orbed gospel rather than a truncated gospel in order to accomplish this. We need gospel clarity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your words are the words of life. Use these words, Lord, that I've offered today. Take them and purify them, and then give them back to us by your Spirit in a way that will transform us into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.